You ready? Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Nate Silver. And, and this, this is Model Talk. Talk. <laughs> and in fact, this is Model Talk live from Washington, D.C. Election Day is just two weeks away, and we're recording one of our final Model Talk episodes of this election, along with 600 Friends of the Pod at 6th and I in Washington, D.C. Yeah, there we go. It is our first time back in front of a live audience since January of 2020. And in fact, this is exactly where we were in January of 2020, our last live show pre-pandemic was here at 6th and I. So I wanted to start off by saying a big thank you to everyone who's here tonight. Being together in person like this is really nice, and you, the audience, are what make it what it is. So give yourselves a big round of applause. And of course, a special hello to those of you who are joining virtually, like my grandmother. Hi, Grandma. It's great to have all of you with us as well. So like I said, election day is just two weeks away. It's an election that's seeing record levels of voter enthusiasm in the polls. It comes after the Supreme Court's historic decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, amid 40-year high inflation, and as some politicians continue to cast doubt on the legitimacy of American elections altogether. Tonight, we're going to talk about all of it. For those of you who aren't familiar, Model Talk is the part of the 538 Politics podcast where we talk about the numbers behind the 538 forecast. At the time of this recording, those numbers are as follows. Democrats have a 55% chance of keeping control of the Senate, and Republicans have an 81% chance of winning the House. The governor's races are currently toss-ups in Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, and Oregon. And since this is a live show, I'll give you a sense of how this is all going to work. We more or less treat this like a regular podcast taping. You'll hear things that never make it into the final cut, maybe some swearing, maybe a lengthy tangent. I don't know. I don't think that's something Nate would ever do. <laughs> Only you here with us tonight will ever know what happened in this room tonight. Later on in the show, we're also going to be joined by some special guests. We'll play a round of midterms trivia and then we'll take some questions from the audience. So is everyone ready? Before we get to the state of the midterms here in the US, I do want to answer a really important listener question that we received from across the pond. Brett asks, how does the model feel about the head of lettuce that predicted the end of Liz Truss? It seems that vegetable got worldwide attention for one correct off-the-cuff prediction, while the model sits in obscurity in a server room in Manhattan doing all the hard work. Yeah. If I was the model, I would hate that head of lettuce with the heat of a thousand suns. I mean, the hey. model has not hated anyone so much since Paul the Octopus in the World Cup. <laughs> For those of you who aren't familiar, this uh, <laughs> head of lettuce became famous after The Economist published the following quote. Liz Truss blew up her own government with a package of unfunded tax cuts and energy price guarantees on September 23rd, take away the 10 days of mourning after the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and she had seven days in control. That is roughly the shelf life of a lettuce. <laughs> Serious question. Is it easier to forecast political outcomes in Britain? Oh, no. In fact, it's like hard to even follow political outcomes in Britain because people are making so many jokes and memes. I'm like, what actually happened? It takes like a long time to find the actual information. They also seem to have just wilder swings than we do in the U.S., right? Like, they'll see a no, politician with yeah. a 7% approval rating. No, there, there is uh, important information there, right? The fact that Labour was ahead by like 35 points before she resigned, you would, you would never see that in the U.S. context, right? There's no chance, given contemporary political coalitions, that, you know, Joe Biden could cure cancer and uh, defeat Vladimir Putin, and I don't know what else happens, right? Um, and he and would be like 50-50. 51% of <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so shall we get to business? 
Yes. Let's begin with the Senate. Over the summer, after the Dobbs decision, we saw slow, steady improvement in Democrats' odds of keeping the Senate over months, you know, like two and a half months it took for Democrats to get to their position of having a 70% chance of holding the Senate. Then it hovered there for a while. And then, in the past week or so, we've seen Republicans' odds improve abruptly. The odds of each party winning the Senate now sit at about 50-50. Usually, you would see something like this when there's a big news story, but I, unless I missed it, I don't know that we have. What's going on? I don't know. I mean, it can be... And that's the show. Thanks, okay. everyone, for coming. <laughs> I mean, first of all, polling is not presenting, like, an exact replica of reality, right? I don't mean in the sense of our polls accurate or not, but I mean, like, there is some luck and some variance in, in when certain polls come in at certain times. You know, I think if you had some true infinite number of polls in every day, that might have been more of a smooth curve downward. You know, there are some other theories. Um, it's kind of interesting that this little kink in the graph happens, like, right at the 21-day window where polls in 538 count for future pollster ratings. I don't actually think, like, pollsters are literally concerned about that. But yeah, like, that's a little conspiratorial in my book. Okay, but, like, look, pollsters have incentives to be accurate, right? Yeah. And we're kind of in the phase now where if you have a poll that's way off, that could generate negative reputational risk, right? So it's not crazy to me to think that pollsters would be kind of publish the number they really think more than kind of, oh, just trust the data numbers? I don't think it's crazy. Well, if you extend that argument to its logical conclusion, you would say that there's a better chance that the polls are currently off in the direction of favoring Republicans more than they should. It's not crazy to think that. I mean, our, our model, more than you might assume, kind of still assumes polls will favor Democrats, in part because we're still seeing a fair number of polls among registered voters. It's pretty clear that Republicans do better in likely voter polls, and the model adjusts for that. In some states where you have out-of-date polling, the model adjusts for the fact that we haven't had polls yet in the new regime, so it's making a timeline adjustment, as it's called. Um, in some states, the fundamentals don't look particularly strong for Democrats, so they've kind of overcome the fundamentals all cycle, maybe not anymore. So if you had to bet relative to like the 538 polling average, you'd still bet on, their, on the actual reality being more Republican than the polls. But it's not a crazy argument, right? I mean, people should always consider that possibility that like, Maybe it is an unusual cycle. One thing in the back of my head is when you have had actual elections since Dobbs, Democrats did very, very well, right? Not only did it not look like a red wave, it looked like kind of a borderline blue wave year. Um, I think pollsters have very little incentive to... If the polls miss and Democrats do really well, within a certain boundary, I mean, if they do like crazy, crazy well, right? And like Ron DeSantis loses, okay. Um, if they have, like, a night on the high end of expectations, they pick up two Senate seats and maybe the House is a photo finish and goes to some recounts. Right, like, no one's big... going to cancel us if that happens, but if the reverse happens, we're screwed. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But given those incentives, people respond to those incentives, potentially. So do you think at this point the forecast is getting ahead of the polls in a way? Our congressional model is not particularly aggressive, right? In part because you have these fluctuations that kind of um, tend to even out over time. I mean, because, you know, it's like, oh, man, this is so slow to adjust to Dobbs. And you see, it's like Dobbs happened middle June, and it takes until September 22nd for the forecast to peak, right? Because it's skeptical, skeptical, skeptical. Um, but then maybe it actually adjusted too much, if you think about it that way. So it's, it's like actually kind of like a tricky question to define what you're trying to optimize for. Um, but no, but it's not as aggressive as like our presidential models where, where it can shift by a few points in a day. One other thing, too, that's a more technical point is that whenever you're near 50-50 in something, you're near the fat part of the distribution, a shift will affect the numbers more, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. take that much to go from 70 to 60. It takes a lot to go from 85 to 95 because you're out on the tail. So we're in the middle part here, and to go to 60-40 one way, 60-40 the other way, isn't that big a shift in some sense. There are two weeks left. If this were a presidential election, we would say, sure, this forecast could change again by you know, 15 percentage points between now and election day. Do you think that's still possible in a midterm environment? I mean, I think 
will be somewhere in the 60-40 bucket. I think I'd give two to one odds that will be somewhere in, or one to two odds that will be somewhere in that 60-40 Odds range. of where the odds, we're getting, we're, we're, we're getting very meta. We're getting meta, far yeah. out. We got to change the topic. Um, so no, I mean, I mean, look for a while, like, so the past few days of polls have seen a little bit more stability. You know, you've seen, you know, some of the CNN polls are pretty good for, for Democrats, for example. Um, so less of the sky is falling, but I mean, look, we're going to go into election night with some degree of, well, considerable degree of uncertainty in the Senate. In the House, we're probably at the point now where there has to be like a systematic polling error favoring Democrats for them to, to win. Although, again, like the polls and the model are slightly different things, right? Um, the model assumes that there's going to be a fairly big turnout differential. If that doesn't happen, then, then the House gets more competitive, right? I mean, if you take the raw generic ballot, unadjusted for likely voters, it's GOP plus 0.5. If you actually have that being the popular vote, that would be potentially pretty competitive in the House, but... but and the forecast probably, right now thinks it's actually going to turn out to be a three-point Republican advantage to a like four-point Republican advantage. Three and a half, yeah. yeah. Um, one reason for that is that there are more empty districts where Democrats don't have a candidate. That accounts for like a point or a point and a half of it. But also there's a likely voter adjustment that, that affects that. Speaking of the generic ballot, let's move on to the House. So Republicans have an 81% chance of winning the chamber. I think for a lot of people, an 81% chance sounds like a done deal. We started putting that uncertainty in context just now. You know, put these odds in context, Mr. Silver. What does an pocket, 81% chance pocket, even mean? It's pocket aces against pocket fives. Democrats have pocket fives. Sometimes you hit a set on the flop. Okay. <laughs> You're not happy about it. <laughs> um, what's one House district that you have your eyes on in terms of sort of judging the outcome of the midterms or reading the tea leaves of where the political coalitions go from here? I mean, I think the Ohio 9 race between Kaptur and Majewski, he's the one who uh, allegedly badly overstated his military credentials, and it's a Trumpy-ish district, I think, in Toledo. Um, she is still ahead in our model, but there's been very little polling. That's kind of the classic matchup of, like, you have a problematic Republican candidate and a fairly strong incumbent, um, but how much can you survive uh, in a red-ish district in a red-ish year? So that's probably a, a pretty good benchmark. How much has the importance of incumbency declined over the past decade or so? Because we still see prime examples of incumbency mattering, particularly maybe in, in Senate races that we saw in 2020 and 2018, right? Joe Manchin. Susan Collins. Susan Collins, famously. So how do we go about judging when incumbency matters and when it doesn't? It's declined quite a bit, and it's kind of hidden in certain ways. It's hidden in part because there are so few competitive districts that you can be a mediocre incumbent and win because your state's really red or, or really blue. Um, but no, the incumbency advantage at this point is probably only a couple of percentage points on average. If you're an incumbent who breaks from their party, if you're an incumbent who has a, you know, actually in smaller states, so states like West Virginia or Montana or Alaska, incumbency can be quite a bit more powerful. You have more relationship with your constituents. Um, so in some circumstances, it matters more, but like the generic one-term senator in Ohio or Florida or Pennsylvania probably doesn't have much of an incumbency advantage anymore. During the summer, as we saw Democrats improve their lot in the polls and in the forecast, we actually had a way to test those numbers, which you brought up before, through special elections. We had a good number of special elections throughout the summer. Before the Dobbs decision, Republicans had a two-point overperformance in those special elections. After the Dobbs decision, Democrats had a nine-point overperformance in those special elections. Now, the sample is small, but we were able to look and say, this isn't just differential response bias. This is people actually getting motivated or demotivated or persuaded and turning up to the polls. We, you know, unfortunately for us, we want all the data we can get, haven't had any special elections after this polling shift in Republicans' direction. 
Is there any other way to test this in the absence of a special election? I know there's a test coming in two weeks, but yeah. you know, if we if Let's we just wait for that. <laughs> there, no, there there aren't. I mean, there aren't, right? I mean, there's like, don't look at early vote data. Just just don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, no, in two weeks there'll be a test. It would have been nice to have like you know, let's like have some random special election in Pennsylvania this week. That'd be fun. Um, but no, I mean, you, and it's it's almost like you almost kind of enter like the fog of ignorance now, where like, like obviously our forecast can shift and will shift to some degree between now and November eighth, right? But like, it's almost like you could go to sleep for two weeks, go to the Grand Canyon, one of those trips where like you go in the Grand Canyon and like nine eleven happens or something. Um, but like, wow, that's dark. Aren't Is that like, from? Are you mining your own personal life? No, I feel like they're like. 37 stories in Esquire magazine historically about like someone goes to the Grand Canyon like a two-week camping trip and then the world changes when they... Isn't that like a genre of... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know about that, but I get what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but like now would be like a relatively good time to do that. So wait, are you then, Mr. Silver yourself, one of the people who would say like, don't look at the polls, don't look at the forecast, you're going to find out soon enough. Our boss is sitting right there and we love traffic, <laughs> so um, this might have to be off the record. But... Um, what are you saying? I mean, I, what, what more are we going to learn? I mean, I guess there is some question about, like, kind of, has this Republican surge abated or is it continuing, right? But I'm not sure we're going to, like, like, we're going to go into election night, I think, with, like, the Senate being highly uncertain and with a clear Republican but not impossible Democratic path in the, in the House. So despite your suggestion that people sit in the uncertainty for two weeks. That's not, that's not what people are going to do. That's not even what we're going to do. And so in the run-up to a close election like this, people try to look for other sources of data to try to read the tea leaves. And that brings us to today's good or bad use of polling. One of these pieces of data is oftentimes enthusiasm, and NBC recently published a poll on enthusiasm with the following write-up, quote, the poll found 70% of all registered voters expressing high interest in the election, either a 9 or a 10 on a 10-point scale, the highest percentage ever in the survey for a midterm election at this point. This comes after, of course, record turnout in 2018. By party, 78% of Republicans have high interest in the midterms, compared with 69% of Democrats. The nine-point GOP enthusiasm edge is up from September, when it was plus three, and August, when it was plus two. How useful is enthusiasm polling like this? That actually is a pretty good indication historically. Um, there are different ways to frame that question. Sometimes people ask, how is this compared to your usual interest in midterms? But like, that question's been reasonably predictive of uh, both overall turnout and turnout differential. And so, you know, yeah, the theme here is there is, you're not going to have a year like 2010 or 2014 where Democratic turnout was pathetic, right? You're going to have at least pretty good Democratic turnout unless pollsters are totally full of shit, right? But you're going to have also really good Republican turnout, if not better. And Democrats might have the deal closing, the deal of swing voters on on the economy. Wait, and so can we talk about why this is? Because I think after the Dobbs decision, the word on the street was that enthusiasm was really high amongst Democratic voters, even independents who were motivated by the issue. Republicans had become somewhat demotivated. Now that we're sort of in the fall, is it just that, you know, the historic trends are setting in when, when your party is out of power and you don't really like the party in power, like dissatisfaction is more motivating in politics, electoral politics, than satisfaction? I mean, in, in general, yes. In general, there is a enthusiasm advantage that helps the out party, the opposition party, this year the Republicans. There's also historically been, just in general, like a Republican turnout advantage because their voters tend to be older, uh, whiter, used to be more educated, they face less, fewer barriers to voting, right, and have historically higher turnout. Now, some of that is shifting. Now that you have Democrats have this college-educated coalition, um, those people tune into midterm news more and are more likely to vote. So I'm not sure whether there's the historical GOP bias in likely voter polls, but there is the conditional advantage that when you're out of power, um, although, again, I should be careful, because, like, you know, 
how out of power is the GOP when you have a lot of major states where you have very aggressive GOP governors and when you have a Supreme Court that is pretty activist, right? So that was kind of the argument. That's like the historical argument. If Democrats have a, if they hold the House, then the best argument for why they did that is because the GOP was demonstrating to voters kind of how much power it had, even in this off-year election. Well, this brings up a good point, because in some ways, if you look at the individual states, obviously, in each state, a different party is oftentimes in power. There are some states where there's divided power, but you get the point. Do we see differential turnout amongst partisans based on the actual partisanship of a state? Like, Democrats in a red state might be more motivated to turn out because they're upset about Dobbs or something like that, or Republicans in a blue state are more motivated to turn out because they're upset about the shutdowns and inflation and whatever it may be. I'd have to think about how I'd like, test that question mm -hmm. empirically. It's like not a crazy thought, right, that you are reactive in part against, I mean, every now and then it seems like you get like, you know, what was it, the Scott Brown Coakley election back in 2010, right, where yeah. if you're in a state where your vote usually doesn't matter, and then for some reason you randomly get an election where it can matter, I think that can be motivating. I mean, probably there are, um, states where you move, and if you're a Republican in New York City, then you kind of just disengage from politics because your vote doesn't really control very much. So, you know, maybe it's the thing around, around the margin, but I haven't looked at that rigorously. Well, speaking of frustrating partisan conceptions, impulses, let's talk about governors. And yes, do you guys recognize who that is? <laughs> Five is here with us tonight. Of course, yeah. So governor's races tend to be less partisan than House or Senate races. That's how you end up with popular Republican governors of Massachusetts, popular Democratic governors of Louisiana. Recently, we've seen polls showing closer than expected races in states like Oklahoma and New York. In Oklahoma, incumbent governor Kevin Stitt is only leading his Democratic opponent, Joy Hoffmeister, by a point in our polling average. But our forecasts suggest that he has a 91% chance of re-election. What is going on here? Should we pay more attention to the forecast or more attention to the polling average? The forecast. It incorporates more information. I mean... Um, a man with confidence. Well, first of all, this is where the power... It's not really like a big data thing, but this is where the power of empiricism helps, right? If you go back and look at all the elections where the polling is kind of close... Um, in a state that's either really red or really blue, and what happens, it usually kind of defaults to, to the partisan winner in that state. I mean, I should say there are different versions of the forecast. The, the light version in Oklahoma has, you know, has it 65-35 or something, right? And the fundamentals version uh, has it, you know, 80-20 or something. And, but, like, the, you know, the expert forecasters are skeptical this is happening. These are, by the way, like, you have a few recent polls, but they're kind of... Smaller sample size polls, um, not necessarily a lot of pollsters in Oklahoma that have a long track record. And so it's like, not like you have like the uh, murderer's row of pollsters polling Oklahoma, for example, right? You have some suggestion the race is competitive, but like if you look more often than not, the Democrats one point behind in Oklahoma and they wind up having a relatively good year but losing by, by six or something. So should we apply the same logic to New York where we've seen... Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul's lead over Republican Lee Zeldin has fallen from 16 points to 7 points since Labor Day. There are polls out now showing low single-digit leads for Kathy Hochul. Again, our forecast suggests that she has a 97% chance of winning re-election. Are there circumstances in which we do see someone like a Lee Zeldin winning in a midterm environment where partisanship applies less to gubernatorial races, you know, one party has full control of the White House and Congress. I mean, he does not have the profile of someone who you would think would overperform that much, nor does Hochul seem like she has any enormous problems necessarily. Um, what if we have that race probabilistically? I mean, I think, I think pretty low for Zelda, but like... Yeah, 3% uh, chance. You know, first of all, she has a pretty big lead in the poll. Whether she's underperforming or not is one thing, but like, and there's also like a fair number of spammy polls, partisan-affiliated polls in that race. It kind of feels like a race that people are trying to make happen a little bit like 
South Carolina and Lindsey Graham <laughs> a couple of years ago or something, but, but, you know, but South Carolina is less red than New York is blue. No, if she loses, then we're back in, oh my God, polls on another disastrous night, you know, uh, aftermath kind of scenario where it'd be a very bad route for Democrats. I don't think she has like individual factors that would cause her to lose unless like just the polls are totally bad. So, so lovely image. Can happen. On the topic of governors, check out this segue. <laughs> there are some rising stars in both parties running for re-election or election in gubernatorial races this year. Ron DeSantis in Florida, Carrie Lake in Arizona, Beto O'Rourke in Texas, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. Which gets me thinking about 2024. You ready? Okay, I'm always ready. How will the results of 2022 shape who runs and even who wins in 2024? And let's, let, we're going to do like, you always give me like an A1, A2, B1, B2 when you're trying to like break down your explanations for how things are going. So A1 is how does Biden's decision about whether or not to run again in 2024 get shaped by the midterm outcomes, or is that irrelevant? Well, it'll definitely affect, like, the media narrative about Biden. Back when Democrats looked like they were going to get routed in the midterms, you heard, and when Biden had 37% of people running, you heard almost a presumption that he would be out of um, office after the first term, and then it kind of shifted toward, of course, he's the strongest Democratic alternative. I mean, I think that probably overshifted relative to decision that, like, it's probably ultimately about, like, you know, what is his physical and mental stamina for the next four years, and or how does he think that will play with voters, and how much of a liability might that be, and does he think he is the best person to win re-election for, for Democrats? Um, but certainly, if you have, I mean, you already had candidates like Gavin Newsom running for 2024. You'll have much more of that um, maybe quietly at first and not so quietly after that if Democrats get, get routed, right? You'll have less of that if they, like, have a good year. And in the middle, then it's kind of status quo, I guess. But, like, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if you go to prediction markets, I think they still Biden, have Biden as an underdog to run in, or to be the nominee. Not to run necessarily, but to be the nominee in 2024. So let's break these rising stars into a couple buckets. We have the folks who have almost no chance, almost, between little chance and almost no chance of winning, Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams. If you run and lose two high-profile statewide campaigns, and then in Beto's case, also a national campaign, and lose all of them, is your career over? <laughs> I think they're in different buckets, actually. I mean, I think, like, so first of all, like, in general, parties benefit from having plausible stand-ins in case something goes wrong, right? If Greg Abbott has some major scandal um, that can still cost candidates five or ten points, then Beto can win. And so, you know, you'd rather have that than when you have a problematic Democratic candidate as well. Um, I mean, Abrams, uh, I think, is underperforming a little bit, right? I mean, Kemp... Well, certainly Gains Warnock, some, but obviously those are two very different races. They're different races, but like, but she seems to be running kind of more of a nationalized race where she's running to the left, if anything, a little bit. And, you know, I'm not sure if she's not trying to position herself more for like just being a player on the national scene and a part of the conversation, right? Um, but no, I do feel like candidates get like, if you're a political party, to have candidates who are credible candidates who take that 5% or 10% flyer that comes through sometimes, like, you want to encourage that. And so, you know, they're probably both going to lose and they'll get, like, a lot of crap at them. But, like, it's a healthy thing for a party when they are, are running a race anywhere they have even a remote chance. Well, you hear that argument on two counts. One is what you're saying on the off chance something, you know, if Kemp doesn't win the primary yeah. and all of a sudden Stacey Abrams is running against David Perdue, then the race might look different. But you also hear the argument like, oh, parties should put up strong, viable candidates, even in states where they know they might lose because it's a process of building a party infrastructure and like one day we will win. Is that how politics works? 
I don't know. I mean, party, you know, we never know. Like, Alaska is a state now where Democrats have a House incumbent. I mean, it's probably because of the ranked choice voting system, right? But, like, but you never know when a state like Alaska is going to become more, more competitive. It's, like, not crazy to think that Alaska is so eccentric that, like, in eight years or 12 years, Alaska is some type of swing state. No, I think it's always good to play for the long term, and Democrats have kind of forgotten that, right? You had the whole kind of 50 straight strategy under under Howard Dean, and now, like I mentioned earlier, you have far more um, districts where there's no Democrat running than no Republican running. And there can also be things where, you know, if you have down-ballot races going down to dog catcher and city council, um, you know, people don't even see a Democrat on the ballot, there's no straight ticket option, then that can, that can potentially hurt the party too. The flip side of this is, like, people, I think, spend too much time donating to hopeless races with memefied candidates, right? Um, so that's, that's one risk, right, is that people aren't spending their money in cases where it would matter more, but. Okay, so next bucket, rising star Republicans, Ron DeSantis and Kerry Wake. Ron DeSantis has a over 90% chance of winning re-election. According to our forecast, Kerry Wake is in a pretty competitive race it's more or less a 50-50 proposition, the gubernatorial race in Arizona. Do folks like that have a real argument to make against Trump as the heir apparent to the nomination in 2024? I mean, I think, well, DeSantis is clearly like Newsom, but even more so, kind of already running a 2024 campaign, right? He's not officially declared yet, neither is Trump for that matter, but he is um, doing the things to gain a national profile. You can see him kind of carving out kind of wings against the center, where on the one hand, the true Fox News watching conservatives might actually think that he is more on the ball talking about the controversy of the day and busting immigrants to Martha's Vineyard and critical race theory, right? Whereas the moderates might think at the end of the day, he's a little bit more sane than Trump and we can trust him a little bit more. Um, you know, so he's already kind of running a somewhat tactically effective campaign. I think it somewhat remains to be seen how, like, charismatic and appealing he actually is as a candidate. Um, Blake is someone who you, you can kind of predict, given the psyche of the media, would attract a lot of attention, right? As here's someone who is Trump, but in a much more presentable package. Um, this is someone who says staunchly that the 2020 election was rigged, basically made that the center of her primary campaign and has, has stuck to it in a way that even other Republican candidates have not in competitive statewide and in a, in a In a swing state, too. Um, and she's now, you know, outperforming Blake Masters a little bit. Which so is what's up with that, right? Like, she's an extreme candidate. You know, the things that she says about 2020 are verifiably false. And yet she is doing significantly better than Blake Masters in that race. Because she has this TV newscaster persona where you can kind of, like, I don't think she would come across to the average voter as extreme. extreme. And she walks a line that, um, I mean, with Trump, it's so explicit, right? And like DeSantis, it's kind of like so nakedly tactical in kind of a Ted Cruzian way. Um, but, like, with Lake, it's like, oh, you can kind of speak with some ambiguity to have practice as, like, on-air talent where, you know, you watch the interview, like, ABC News with John Carl, right? He just kind of walks the line where if you don't know the subtext and the context, and she says, well, if the election is fair, then of course I'll respect it, right? Like, that won't seem that crazy to the average voter necessarily, right? Um, it's more the subtext of what she really believes over time that makes her much further, at least on Stop the Steal stuff, right wing than someone else might seem. Final bucket here is, I mentioned Gretchen Whitmer because we're talking about gubernatorial candidates. You could maybe add Raphael Warnock to the pack, even though he's running for re-election in a Senate campaign. Is it clear who, other than Gavin Newsom, would make a sort of like plausible pitch to be the next Democratic nominee in a way that would maybe encourage Joe Biden to be like, eh, maybe not. I mean, as a, as a Michigander, I think Whitmer is a, so she is 
a fairly heavy favorite and might overperform in the environment, right? I think, you know, she's also going to be, if she is reelected in her oh, second which, By the way, that's true, right? Wisconsin is a toss-up right now. But our, in our for, gubernatorially, in our forecast, Whitmer's doing very, like, it, she, yeah. our forecast thinks she's winning. She's winning. Yeah, she's ahead. She's been solidly ahead in the polls. There's some that have a smaller margin, some that have a wider margin, right? But no, she has a pretty good argument. Two-term governor from a swing state overperformed the fundamentals. Um, if you're in your second term, you don't have this thing about, like, it's a little weird if, like, Beto somehow won, right? You'd be like, I finally won an election. Now I'm going to run for president. <laughs> like, that would be pretty weird, right? Um, so I'm not sure these kind of first-term governors are really going to be plausible candidates. Um, I mean, Warnock is interesting. If, you, if somehow Stacey Abrams won in Georgia, or you'd have a, a Democrat reappointed to the Senate, right? Then I guess when would the special election be held? I guess you'd have, like, that seat would come up yet again if he somehow ran, right? I mean, maybe if Democrats, like, maybe if Warnock wins and Democrats lose the Senate anyway, then maybe 51-49 versus 52-48 doesn't matter. But the fact that he would cost Democrats, assuming Kemp wins, at least temporarily... A Senate seat is kind of a liability. So from the perspective of you have to resign to run, Although the party wouldn't really stand You don't stand have to it. resign. Unless there's laws in Georgia that would compel that, you don't have to resign. Or that if you win, you have to resign. Yeah. Why not be like, oh, I'm going to multitask. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have made it through our forecast. I hope that answered every question you've ever had about American politics in the House, Senate, and uh, Governor's Mansions across the country. So now it is time for our special guests. I want to welcome up on stage 538's Washington, D.C. Bureau, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe and Nathaniel Rakich. Get on up here. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a clock right here. It's 7.45. This was supposed to happen at 7.45, and it's 7... This has never happened before. <laughs> Truly. Yes! Yes! Thank you. Round of applause. Um, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe is a senior writer at 538. Give her a round of applause. Nathaniel Rakich is a senior elections analyst at 538. Another round of applause. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but... Um, oh, take off your shirt, Galen. Our oh my boss gosh. is sitting right there. I asked her before. I was like, can I strip during the live show? And she was like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> so here, we're twins. I have a 5 shirt on, too. Here he is. Woo! Wow. Radical vulnerability. 
Um, <laughs> you both live in DC, and we're so happy you could join us tonight. We're going to play some midterms trivia, but before we get to that, I want to ask you a little bit about your beats. So, Amelia, you've been covering the Dobbs decision and its political and legal ramifications since before the decision even came down. And in the wake of the decision, as we've discussed, we saw record numbers of Americans saying that abortion was a top issue for the country. That's fallen some since. And at this point, I'm curious, how is the Dobbs decision shaping these midterms? So I think there are a couple ways to look at it. One, from my perspective as someone who's been covering abortion for almost a decade, is that what happened over the summer was crazy. Um, I am used to looking in these issue polls and kind of looking down, 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 down the issues, and abortion is right at the bottom. It was just not something that was on people's radar. It was not something they really wanted to think about. Um, and then the Dobbs decision happened, and it was shocking, and a lot of people were angry, and other people were happy, but it was something that brought this issue forward in a really visceral way, and we saw that in the polls, and abortion wasn't rising as high as the economy and inflation, but it was up there with issues that I'm much more used to seeing at the top of voters' priorities. Um, so in that sense, even if abortion has fallen a little bit, and I would caveat that by saying, I don't know if we know that it's because abortion has fallen in voters' priorities or because something like economy and the inflation and inflation is rising. Um, we don't know that. We just know how they're prioritizing in a list or a group of three. But even, even if abortion is sort of less salient than it was a few months ago, it has already shaped this midterms. It has brought Democrats into the mix, or certainly helped bring Democrats into the mix in a way that we would not have predicted. So that's my argument for Dobbs still matters. I mean, does it matter even more in specific states? Because of course, we're gonna see states where there are ballot questions on legal abortion. We're gonna see gubernatorial races where the individual candidates have set themselves up as a proxy for voting on legal abortion or what have you. Are there particular states where you think it, like, you're going to be able to look at that election and say, wow, okay, that definitely mattered in Michigan or Arizona, but it probably wasn't really motivating voters in New York? That's a super interesting question because Democrats are trying to run on abortion everywhere. Um, you've got you know, the Oregon gubernatorial race. Ads are all about abortion. I have to say, Oregon is probably... I don't know if it's the place in the country where abortion rights are the safest, but it is really up there. So... If you're thinking about issues that would matter to Oregon voters as they're thinking about their own life and perhaps their own ability to access abortion, you would not expect that to really motivate people. Um, on the other hand, a state like Michigan, where voters will literally be going out and voting on whether abortion is enshrined in their state constitution, it matters a lot in obvious ways there. And so I think one of the interesting questions will be, how are voters motivated in states where the outcome of the midterms will really matter for abortion access versus how much is this an issue that has percolated into the national environment to the point where even if you're in a blue state where abortion access is not under threat at all, a candidate talking about abortion and talking about the threat to abortion is still going to make you want to come out and vote. Well, it speaks to the nationalization of our politics, right? People aren't necessarily looking at, you know, whether abortion is at stake in their race. They just think abortion is important nationally, and that's going to motivate me to vote. Right. But it's, but it's interesting with abortion, because I spend a lot of time talking to people about abortion, and people in Texas, I'll just say anecdotally, this is, this is not something that I, I pulled out of a survey, but people in Texas seem to feel this issue a lot more strongly and sort of experientially than people in blue states. For people in blue states who I talk to who care about abortion, they're saying, you know, oh, I'm donating to an abortion fund, I'm doing X, Y, Z, but it's not the, the same kind of like, I see this in my community, I see this in my state, and I don't know if Dobbs changed that. I think the midterms is gonna be a really interesting um, test. Yeah, once we get the results, we're going to come back here and do this all over again and uh, answer all these questions with, you know, the real hard data to, you know, get to the bottom of it all. No, we will. Come back. We'll do another live show. Nathaniel, speaking of 
the election. When we get the results, yeah. When we get the results. I know this is a synagogue. I'm just, I'm just going <laughs> to... This is the scary part of the podcast. <laughs> okay, so we all were there when election day turned into election week in 2020. Um, I don't remember it, but if you say so. I, the thing I most remember is that it preempted my birthday party because I you know, was stuck in my apartment for six days covering... Before the election this year, Galen. I know. But like, it's hard to sell. It's hard to like go hard when you know that there's an election in three days, <laughs> right? You know, I'm gonna have my party afterwards so we can really get toe up. So, election week, there were questions about the voting process during a pandemic. It took days to get the results in key states. Once those results were in, the president and other Republicans cast doubt on their legitimacy. Should we expect 2022 to be different? Um, well, when you told me that we were going to be talking about this, you know, I did some research. Real peek behind the curtain there. Exactly. <laughs> all the, this is all staged, folks. Um, I, you know, originally I was fairly optimistic that we would, you know, get all or most of the results on election night. After doing the research, I am not as sanguine about that, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know, it just comes down to, like, especially, like, given our, our forecast numbers in the House right now, right, control of the House, if things go as expected, will probably be known on election night. Republicans will, will flip that, you know, with some room to spare. Um, the Senate, you know, we now know basically it's going to come down to three states, right, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Nevada. Um, I think, or sorry, not Arizona, um, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada. And I think that there are real questions as to how quickly we'll get the results in all of those states, at least two of them, plus Arizona, which is why I mentioned it, um, which is, of course, probably number four on the kind of um, priority list for the Senate. So in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is a state that does not allow pre-processing of absentee ballots, which is why it took, I think, five days in 2020 for the result to be called. And that, of course, was the state that delivered the presidency to Biden. And... Because of that, um, you know, it just it's going to take a long time to to count absentee votes. And you know, these counties, the people who are counting the votes, they have more experience this year. Um, a lot of counties that actually like literally were like, okay, it's 10 p.m., we're going to go home and and start counting again in the morning. Um, they've said they won't be doing that this year, so that should be faster. Um, but uh, you know, nothing has kind of fundamentally changed um, in terms of the law. The, the, the big thing here is, like, the question is how many people are going to vote by mail, of course. During 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, um, a lot of people voted by mail. Obviously, around 50% of Pennsylvania votes were, were mail ballots. Will it be this, that high this year? Probably not. Will it be higher than usual still? Probably. I think there are a lot of people, in particular Democrats, who voted by mail in 2020 were like, hey, this was really convenient. I'm going to do this going forward. Um, and so, yeah, so I think in a state like Pennsylvania, especially given, and the X factor here too is how close these races are, right? Even if every ballot were election day and kind of cast in the traditional manner, if a race is super close, you know, within a recount margin, half a percentage point or something like that, it's going to take days, if not longer, to, to get the, the winner there. And in a state like Pennsylvania, that could happen. In a state like Georgia, that could happen. Nevada is a state where they're actually not allowed to report any results until the last voter in line has voted. Um, so we probably won't get any results in Nevada until, I don't know, 11 midnight uh, Eastern time. Um, and then Nevada is a mail, it is now, it is permanently switched to a vote by mail system. Um, so that could also take days to count. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're waiting on Nevada to decide to control the Senate. Oh, and then in Georgia, we have the Georgia runoffs, um, which there's a good chance. So it's, oh, it right. could be December, right? Right. There's a good chance. You're telling us to cancel our Thanksgiving plans, too. Exactly. <laughs> Probably everybody in the audience already knows this because you're at a 538 politics podcast taping. But if nobody in, if no candidate in Georgia gets at least 50% of the vote, that goes to a runoff in December. So, um, yeah, control of the Senate, I, I don't think we'll know on, on election night. So when it comes to first round, we put runoffs to the side for a second. You had to pick a date on which we will know the results of the 2022 midterms. Which date? And then you're going to have to do the over-under. Yeah, you're going to hold it to me. Ooh, um, okay. I mean, look, a lot does depend on like whether the, the polls and the forecast are accurate, right? If kind of things go down as we expect, and like Nevada in particular is super, super close, I'm going to say like maybe Thursday, you know, in terms of just kind of being able to identify 
a, you know, a candidate with a clear lead there. Um, and, but again, like if it comes down to George, the runoff, yeah, yeah, I mean. You're taking the over-under. When will ABC News call the election, or when will Sunday. I know? Oh. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Which, like, to pull the curtain back for a second, I don't even think we've ever talked about this before. I went to bed on election night 2020 knowing who had won. Well, let's. I did. On Tuesday? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I mean, I went to bed at like no. 4 o'clock in the morning, but it was clear who had won to me after by the time I went to bed. After that Milwaukee, the yes. thing, like the police yes. escort of the had ballots result, in Milwaukee. Arizona yeah. had been called, and by the time I went to bed at 4, okay. Wisconsin was called. Can and we I was be like, honest? We just have to, like, be honest. Arizona shouldn't have been called. <laughs> okay. That was very premature by Fox. Yeah. It was. Okay, fair enough. So maybe you're calling me, like, ignorant no, for I, believing that. I went to bed assuming, you know, if Arizona is been called, right, then Republicans have very few outs, right? They would have to kind of sweep the remaining races. But Arizona was obviously very competitive. But we also, beyond just the Fox call, we had reason to believe, based on how the vote was being counted, where the vote was, et cetera, to believe that it would end up in Democrats' column. So I take your criticism of Fox's call. I still went to bed on election night knowing who won. Back to 2022. <laughs> Over under Thursday. For when will I know? I'll take the under. I'll take Wednesday. You're going to know on Wednesday? Well, it's, like, it's a weird... Like, I think there's like a 60% chance that you have a clear enough outcome um, that we'll know on some wee hour of the morning on election night, right? And then it kind of becomes elongated to where... Although the Georgia runoff does throw that into some doubt. So maybe like 50-50, we know, we know election night. I don't know if there's a call, right? You know, all the time we don't know election night... Half the time we know the next day whether or not it's called. Maybe you have the function that looks you like that. You truly love to just like tear those odds out. Tear, like, tear them out. You want to cover every single base. Um, like so the Empire no. State Building, right? It's narrower and narrower. Yeah. We love an Art Deco explanation by yes. Nate Silver. <laughs> um, Amelia, over under. I am going to say over to be interesting. And also because this election has been way more interesting than it should have been. Yeah, so that uninteresting. Why, why should it stop being interesting? And why should our November be calm? Well, um, yeah. And I'll add that... <laughs> it's, it's all about us, right? <laughs> the whole politics world is just designed to, to make our... Yeah. We should rank the elections. Uh, based <laughs> on what? How much I hated my life. <laughs> <laughs> I have some really weird, you know, whatever. Anyway, I got some really weird stories I can show you yeah. sometime. Um, we all have, a lot, have a lot of good stories from 2020 election week. But. Um, you know what? You guys know what's next? Trivia. Mm. Political trivia. Who's ready? Okay, so the way this works is whoever gets closest to the correct answer will get a point. There's no negotiating correct answers. I know the people that I'm playing with. I know you are ones to try to squeeze out that extra point, debate your way into a win. That will not happen. <laughs> Our lovely intern, Emily Vanezki, tracked down a lot of this data. She's right there. Give her a round of applause, <laughs> honestly. She's, she's also part of our DC Bureau. But if you have any issues with the answers, you don't think they're actually correct, you can take them up with Emily on your own time. We're not Aww. entertaining those okay, tonight. Then. I mean, you know, you're so much more fun to yell at than Emily. <laughs> okay, so the, the first question begins with a little bit of a story. So when I was getting ready for this live show tonight, I pulled up the slideshow from our last live show, which was at 6th and I on January 16th, 2020. And the first slide was the 538 Democratic primary forecast 2020 showing the odds that, you know, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, et cetera, would win the Democratic nomination. And I just thought, wow, it's been a long couple of years. I know. Um, so the first question to all of you is on January 16th, 2020, what was Joe Biden's chance of winning the Democratic nomination? We're going to change up the flow from one question to the next because I know there are advantages to going last. So, Nathaniel, we're going to start with you. Yeah. I did study for this, but I didn't study this. <laughs> um, gosh, I really did memory hole 2020. Um, I'll say 45%. Nate? 
Well, is this a version where we have no winner, where we have contested convention as a scenario? Because our model liked that one for a while. Uh, I'm going to go 38%. Okay. Amelia? This is challenging because I have to remember how many people were running at that point. Um, I will say 40%. And Amelia gets it. It is 40%. Damn. Oh, wow. There you go. For the folks listening along at home, there's then Sanders with a 23% chance, no one with a 15% chance, Warren with a 13% chance, Buttigieg with an 8% chance, and all others at a 1% chance. One point, Amelia. Next question. What percentage of the voting age population voted in the 2018 midterms, which was a record-setting turnout year? Let's start with you. The voting age population or the voter eligible population? Voting Ooh. age population. 49. 49, okay. Amelia? I think it was 47. <laughs> no, Nathaniel? Sorry, Nate, 50. 50. That's 53%. Whoa! Which means, you got it. In 2014, this is data from the census. The Census Bureau recorded the lowest turnout rate on record, which was only 42% of the that voting high. age population turned out. So, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what you all think, but, like, we, we cover polls and surveys of Americans on all kinds of things, and we're like, oh, this is what Americans think, this is what Americans think, and especially when you're focusing on polls of all things elections, especially in a midterm like this, you're not actually talking about, you're only talking about, like, half the country. Yeah. 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 A lot of people don't care. All right, Amelia, you ready to... Uh, I was born This is a ready. fun one. Oh, good. Jimmy Carter holds the record for the most movies watched <laughs> in the White House Family Theater. How many movies did he watch during his one term as president? That's an extremely impressive record because he only served one term. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's why he didn't get reelected. He was just watching movies. <laughs> um, I mean, was he watching a movie every night? I'll say 250. 250? Nathaniel? I think it's way higher than that. <laughs> no, did you say this from like Jimmy Carter? What experience Come do you on. say this from? Okay. I'm going to say 600. Whoa. <laughs> okay, 250, 600. I don't think I could name Nate? 600 movies. 249. I'll take the under. He's Ooh. the fucking president. He's busy. <laughs> um, okay, I want to gauge what the audience thinks <laughs> the answer is. So we're going to go, th you're going to vote by applause. Mm -hmm. So who thinks it was 250? Who thinks it was 600? <laughs> <laughs> Who thinks it was 249? I'm... It was 480 oh. movies. Nathaniel gets it. That's a little, a little horrifying. <laughs> Not this. paying them to watch movies. Did they even have that many movies back then? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> this data comes courtesy of Paul Fisher, the White House projectionist from 1953 to 1986. Jimmy Carter was also the first president to watch an X-rated movie in the White House theater, watching Midnight Cowboy with his family. Oh. Of course. Okay, so it is... Nate Silver, zero. <laughs> Amelia, one. Rakich, two. Are we back to where we began? Yes. Nebraska, Nevada, and Washington, D.C. voters are deciding if they will increase the minimum wage this election cycle. In the past 20 years, there have been 21 ballot measures to increase the minimum wage across the country. What percentage have passed? Good question. This is a very Rakich um, question. You love a, a good math. ballot measure. Wait, are you literally you Googling oh the answer in front of me? <laughs> I need to do... Get out of here. <laughs> We're watching... 
which is no, no, 19 no, 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 no. out of 21. You got to round it to the nearest tenth. 90.5%. 19 out of 21. 90.5? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the this, like, final Jeopardy strategy here. 97. 97. All right. Bold. Which is not a... <sighs> Amelia? I don't know. I'm going to say 80. Mr. Silver, you get it. It is 100%. Wow. The next question, I think the DCers might have a little bit of an advantage here. The District of Columbia is not a state. I thank you, Emily, for emphasizing that in the question writing. She wants you to feel it. But when compared to all 50 states, where does Washington, D.C. rank in the gallons of wine consumed per capita? <laughs> is it me? You're up first this time. First. First. <laughs> So am I allowed to say first? Yeah. Or, uh, no, you can't. You can't. No. No. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think you can. You can't There's call somebody answer. else's answer. That's never the rules. <laughs> With this, okay, Emily these decides. are percentages. Yeah, You're allowed decides. to say. You is she, is she allowed to say for Emily? You get to pick. Is she allowed to say first? I don't want to say first yeah, anymore. Can, I don't want that, it. I never want okay. to. Emily says no. Emily says no. Okay. Okay. All right. Fine. Um, I will say third then. Second. <laughs> and Nathaniel gets it. It's second. <laughs> What's first? <laughs> Can we guess who's first? So what's number one? Can we guess who's first? Oh, yes. Okay. For a bonus point. So wait, wait, wait. Let me, I just, I, okay. sometimes I have difficulty with math when I don't have a calculator in front of me. So it's one to three to one, right? One, Amelia. Three, Nathaniel. One, Nate. Yes. It's a bonus point if you can guess number one. So who goes first? Same as last time. Nate, go ahead. Or Oregon. Okay. I gotta say California. Okay. Wine State. Vermont. What? <laughs> Wait. Okay, DC. We have we have an actual sample to pull right here. Mm -hmm. So if you're second, who do you think is number one? Wisconsin? Yeah, Have guys. you been to Wisconsin? <laughs> they drink like fish. Yeah, yeah but they drink... Yeah, they drink know. beer. They, they drink like go beer to a bar liquor, in Wisconsin and try to order a glass of wine. Wait, I can't... <laughs> okay, let's try one more time. Yell out some more states. Oh, Connecticut's a good one. Connecticut is kind of a good one. Connecticut is really good, yeah. I honestly didn't hear a single person say it. <laughs> guys, it's Idaho. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, all right. Okay, so, 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 so. <laughs> Wait, what? We all know that data is not always... This is creating yeah, pandemonium in the house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we I all know. know that data is not always so simple, and there are different ways to measure this, and we were measuring it by gallon of mm. ethanol alcohol per wine consumed by state. What? Per capita. Oh, well, if you had told me that. <laughs> Which, according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, is the best way to measure it. Okay. Wow. Well, they would know. <laughs> Someone really <laughs> liked that. <laughs> um, according to the Beer Institute, heard of it? I, mean, I haven't. According to the Beer Institute, Washingtonians drink more wine than any state, but they measured by the glass and based on estimates. So, consolation prize for all of you. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So, it is Nate 1, Amelia 1, Nathaniel 3. Of presidents since World War II, President Obama lost the most combined House and Senate seats during his presidency, counting all three elections after he was first elected, and that's the two midterms and his re-election campaign. How many combined House and Senate seats did Democrats lose during his presidency? Um, gosh, I don't know. This is a bad one for me to be going first. Um, 140? 140. Nathaniel? 80. 80? 81. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Silver gets it. It's 85 Ooh. seats. 
That is only two more than Dwight Eisenhower lost during his presidency. I was going to say 85, but I'm just playing my positional advantage here. <laughs> no need to, yeah. There you go. Strategy first. Yeah. Okay, so it's 3-2-1. Ooh, all right. I've got to step up my game. This is the final question. We're going to take audience questions. Are you ready? According to census data from 2019, D.C. has the highest percentage of same-sex couple households in the country when compared to the 50 states. What percentage of D.C. households are same-sex couples? I hear cheering in the audience. <laughs> For statistics, right? Of the audience, the same, no. Nathaniel? A lot of whispering in the audience. <laughs> so I should say, we tried to track down the gayest congressional district in America a couple <laughs> years ago for something I was working on. Um, <laughs> and it just so happened to be that I lived in it. Um, <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore, but it was New York's 10th. Mm -hmm. And it's complicated because the American Community Survey doesn't ask straight up, like, are you gay? And like, are you living with your partner? And so the estimates run low. I'll give you that hint. Like, I think DC is gayer than this number actually sounds. Interesting. So like, roommates would or would not count. So it's just like, it's looking at whether there are two men. Depends what kind of roommates. Well, the roommates and, are in the household. And they're married. Oh, they have to be. I think. Oh, they're married. Oh. It's a, rom okay. a romantic okay. couple. Okay. Um, I'm going to get boxed out by you guys either way, so I'll just say 10%. Four, okay, expert. Four, four. Four. Okay. Seven. I'm going to lose anyway. Seven. Don't be so hard on yourself. It's 7.1%. There you go. <laughs> that is the highest compared to any state in the nation, with the national average being 1.5%. So congratulations, DC, on being so gay. Um, now, we are going to end with some questions from the audience, but before Wait, we do um, um, who, who won, Galen? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess, Nathaniel, you want round of applause for Nathaniel. Um, all right, that's a wrap for today's podcast. Thank you, Nate, Amelia, and Nathaniel. And thank you to Sixth and I for hosting us tonight. A special thanks to Vanessa Diaz, our colleague, who took the lead on organizing tonight's show. Thank you, Vanessa. We love you. Thanks again to our intern, Emily. Emily Vineski, of course, played a big role tonight. Round of applause for her. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for coming tonight. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.